Let me uh, start with this question. How many of you do the grocery shopping? How many of you go grocery? Oh, we've got quite a few do the groceries. Okay. How much does a dozen eggs cost? Uh, what do I hear? $1.39? In between. So if you get the organic, cage-free, steroid-free, you like $3.39, somewhere around there of eggs. Anyone ever paid $6,000 for an egg? No. Let me tell you about the $6,000 egg. Todd and Deb Duncan tell a story of the $6,000 egg. They live out in California, uh, and they would go to this restaurant on Newport Beach very often. They'd often go after they'd work out, and they'd get cheeseburgers there. And so they showed up one day, and the waitress is going through the specials that they have, and she says, we got uh, this great special today. It's buttermilk waffles. Uh, Vermont maple syrup, and a fried egg on top. And he said, well, that, you know, that sounds great, but we have a heart set on cheeseburgers. But my wife loves eggs. So Todd, in this effort to be like husband of the year, says, can you put an egg on her cheeseburger? And the waitress just looks at her, him and says, uh, I don't know if we can do that. And he goes back to the kitchen, and he comes back, and he says, no, the... Uh, the kitchen's too busy, so, so we can't do that. And, and Todd is just uh, befuddled because they go to this restaurant all the time. In fact, some of the uh, servers say that they should have their names on a couple of stools there so much. So he just can't believe this. So he waits for another server to come by. She comes by and he says, look, you know, we, we want to order uh, hamburgers, but we, cheeseburgers, but we want an egg on one. And, you know, we'll pay for it, you know, whatever it costs. But if you could just put an egg on one. And she said, well, let me check with the kitchen. Goes back to the kitchen, comes back. Says, no, the kitchen says we can't do it. And he says, well, can I talk to the manager? And she says, sure. You know, comes, goes back, gets the manager. Natalie comes out. And he could tell right away that Natalie was in no mood for a discussion about this. Because she comes out and her first statement is, I hear we have a problem. And that's never good, right? When uh, the conversation starts that way. And uh, he said, no, you know, I, I, just, I just want an egg on my, uh, on my hamburger, you know. And she says, well... We have a special today with waffles with eggs on it, and we've bought just enough eggs to go with the waffles. And if we give you an egg, then we can't serve the waffles and the eggs because we might run out of eggs to go with the waffles. And he said, oh, okay. He said, well, he said, I'll tell you what. He said, you know, if, why don't you just send someone across the street buy some more eggs, and then you would have enough eggs to go with your waffles, and I would be a satisfied customer, and everyone would be happy. And she said, nope. And he said, so you can't do that. She said, no, I can't do that. And he said, well, let me get this straight now. You are going to, she said, my, he said, my wife and I are in here five or six times a month. We spend about $6,000 a year at your restaurant. And you can't send someone across the street to the Whole Foods to get an egg to put on my burger. And she said, nope. And he said, you know what I would do if I were you? He said, I would have sent someone over there, gotten an egg. And she said, well, I can't do that. He said, in the time we've been talking, you could have sent someone over and got an egg. And she said, if you are unhappy, we will gladly take care of your check. And he said, that's stupid. And she looked at him confused. He said, you're willing to use your company's money to take care of my $75 tab, 
because you won't get a $2 egg or aren't willing to throw away a 50-cent waffle to satisfy your customer. He said, I, we're leaving and we're never coming back. This egg just cost you $6,000. Thus, the $6,000 egg. They went across the street to Whole Foods themselves just to check the price of eggs. They were 33 cents for an egg. And then they went to the back of the store where Whole Foods had a restaurant, and they told the story to the uh, waitress there. And the waitress said, our policy is we never say no. And uh, so he said, well, can we customize a pizza on your menu? And the waitress said, we never say no. And so he ordered a pizza with, I think, bacon and vegetables on it and then an egg on top of the pizza <laughs> and enjoyed the pizza. Here's why I tell you the story. We at times, like that waiter or that waitress or that manager, can really get focused on the short-term picture. I don't know about you or if you're like me, but there are times when I get so focused on the short-term that I lose the big picture. I get so focused on the short game that I lose perspective of the long game. You're driving through traffic and all of a sudden somebody cuts you off and all that love and grace that you experienced in church goes out the window. And all of a sudden all that matters is that short game right there that you are mad at that person instead of the long game of that person's soul and meaning to God and they're made in the image of God. We lose sight of the long game. Here's the thing, when it comes to relationships and repurposed relationships, what Paul is saying as we look at these passages and as we look at them over these uh, several weeks is this, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can never lose sight of the long game. You can never get so focused on the short term that you lose focus of the long term, especially in your relationships. And the truth is that all of us probably in our relationships at times get focused on the immediate short-term thing that's going on and we lose sight of the long-term. I mean, you've done it and I've done it. I've done it this week in relationships I know that I'm so focused on being right about one thing that I lose sight of what's going on in the big picture. So it happens in our relationships with one another in the church. We talked about that a few weeks ago when it comes to the gifts that the God gives the church. It happens in our relationship with friends and enemies. We talked about that last week, that with our enemies, we have to keep the long-term picture. But we're going to talk about something a little bit different this week and maybe a little bit relevant to what's going on in our country and in our world. What about our relationships with the government? I'm not sure if you heard, but there was an election this week, um, small one uh, that went on. You might not have heard about it. might have just went right by you. I know I uh, never see enough election commercials. Can do more of those, right? Um, but our country has been consumed with this. In fact, uh, many people throughout the world have been consumed with this for really 20 months. This process has gone on. And probably this year, as much as any other, people have felt tension about this election process, tension about this uh, government and what has gone on. In fact, I can't remember any election in our history like this one where more people were voting against somebody than for somebody on both sides of the ticket. It seemed like everyone I was talking to was saying, well, it's better than the other side. 
Everyone was voting against somebody. I can't remember an election where more people felt they could not tell other people about who they voted for because they were not proud of their vote, even though they felt like that's who they had to vote for. And so we have this tension that builds up. It's a tension that builds up not just around elections, but if you're a Christian, there's a tension that builds up because the reality is we are a part of two different kingdoms. And so you feel a tension as a Christian uh, in a way that someone who may not follow Christ may not even feel it. Let's look at what Paul says about this. Romans chapter 13 is our text for this morning. Uh, And Paul writes about this very relevant topic in his time and day, but it's quite relevant in our time and day too. I'll be honest with you. You might come in this morning and you're like, oh, You picked this text for this morning because you want to talk about the election and government. Well, that would be nice, but actually we lay out our sermons back in January. Um, So this sermon happened to fall on this week. And I will say, when we laid it out and I saw that this was falling near November, I thought, well, that could be timely. Uh, I had no idea how timely it would actually be because these are the words that Paul writes. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There's a number of questions that jump to my mind when hearing this passage, and perhaps yours as well. 
And quite honestly, it's easy to ignore what is the clear teaching of this passage by jumping to all of our questions. So let's first look at the clear teaching of this passage. And this is the reality. We are all a part of two kingdoms. Christians are a part of two kingdoms. One kingdom is a temporary kingdom. It's a short-term kingdom. It's a kingdom of earth. It's a kingdom of this world. We might call it a democracy. We might call it a republic. Um, It might be called by a lot of different names, but in the Bible times, it was a kingdom because there was actually a king. The Caesars in Rome were not only kings, they put themselves on the level of God himself. And so Paul speaks about this aspect that you are part really of two kingdoms. You are citizens of this world, even as you are citizens of heaven. So you are part of a temporary kingdom, but you're also part of an eternal kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, a long-term kingdom. And this is where the tension comes in, right? Because as a Christian, if you follow Jesus, there's part of you that says, that knows I have an allegiance to Jesus. I have an allegiance to to God. I owe him my very life. But as a citizen of this world, we say words like, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And so we have an allegiance to a country. We have an allegiance to a kingdom that's not of this world. And at times, we feel this tension. So Paul's writing to these people in Rome who are feeling this tension and saying, well, what do we do? Because we're Christians now. Doesn't that make us citizens of heaven? And we maybe don't have to obey the laws of this world. And Paul recognizes that this tension is, exists in people's lives. Jesus knew this tension. In fact, in Jesus' day, There were some teachers that tried to trip him up and tried to trap him in his words. And they did this by by provoking him on this tension between government and God. And so one of the teachers came to him one day and said, Teacher, you're a great teacher. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And they thought they had Jesus trapped because no matter what way he answered, he would entrap himself. Because if he said no, well, the governing authorities would sweep in right away because here's a rebel trying to keep people from paying taxes and he would, they would sweep in right away and arrest him. But if he said, yes, it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, then all of the people that were following him would see him as anti-Jewish, anti-patriotic, and they would discredit his ministry. And so they thought, we've got him trapped because we've got him trapped in this tension between God and the governing authorities. And what would Jesus answer? We'll get to that in a few minutes. But the point is that Jesus felt the tension. And you feel the tension. And I feel the tension. It wasn't just Paul and it wasn't just in Jesus' day. It's in our day. Some of you this past Tuesday went to the voting booth and you didn't even know which circle you were going to fill in when you, until you got and stood right before there. And you saw people outside with signs, and you were trying to think through all the things in your life, and you were trying to think through all the things you stand for, and think through all the implications of your vote, and think through all the implications of your country, and you felt this tension maybe this year more than ever before. 
And you went in and maybe you voted for someone and you didn't feel good about it either way, but you did it anyway and you walked out with tension the same way you walked in. We feel it because neither, almost as a Christian, you're almost never going to have a candidate who's going to completely fulfill everything uh, personally, morally, in every way that you'd like them to because Jesus isn't running for office. So many times you're left with a vote for someone who you don't feel completely good about, but you vote anyway. And so we feel this. Paul felt it, Jesus felt it, and we feel it. So what do you do? So what do we do? I'm not talking about how you vote. I'm just saying how do we live in this world where we are citizens of a temporary kingdom and citizens of an eternal one. Two things to keep in mind, I think Paul gives us in this passage. And the first one is this, you are to participate. Participate in the first kingdom until you can't. You can participate in the temporary earthly kingdom until you can't. You are called, Paul says, to participate, to obey, to submit to the authorities that were there, that are there. And Paul uses the illustration here, pay taxes. Because his people in his day were thinking, you know what? We don't want to pay taxes. And in fact, paying taxes reminds us every time that we don't govern ourselves and that we are under a foreign authority. We don't want to pay taxes. And Paul says, you know what? Pay taxes because the authorities are there. They've been put there by God. You should pay your taxes. And this was not an easy thing for some of them to hear. But why does Paul say it? I think it goes back to the $6,000 egg. Because Paul's saying, keep the big picture in view. Don't get so tripped up by the short term and the small things that you lose sight of why you're really here. Don't get so tripped up by the short-term thinking in your relationships that you lose sight of the big picture of what God can do through you. Look, they want their taxes. Pay their taxes to them. Pay the taxes to them. They've been put there by God. You can live and be a citizen of this world and do and follow and submit to the authorities and still live out your relationship to Christ. Sometimes those are hard words to hear. Maybe you don't have trouble paying taxes, but maybe there's something else that you're like, ah, that that one just rubs me the wrong way. I just don't like that rule. I think I'd ask, is it a short-term or a long-term thing? Is it a big issue or is it just a small one that, you know what, I can do it. It doesn't violate my faith. And I can submit to the authorities that have been put over me in this situation. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, sure, in Paul's day, but he didn't deal with what we deal with. He didn't deal with the people that are in power that we have to deal with sometimes. Well, you don't have to know a lot of history of the Roman Empire to think about the type of people Paul was telling them to pay taxes to. When Paul's writing this letter from Corinth to Rome, there was a man on the throne in Rome named Nero. He hadn't been on the throne all that long, but he was an interesting character. He became emperor in 54 AD. A couple of the points of Nero's life, he was married to Octavia, but had a long affair with a slave named Britannicus. Then he murdered Britannicus at the request of his mother, Agrippina. And then it gets real interesting in Nero's life. 
He used to disguise himself and wander the streets at night, visiting brothels and physically attacking citizens. He had an incestuous relationship with his mother, then murdered her, and then he murdered his wife, Octavia. A few years after Paul's letter, Nero blamed a large fire in Rome on Christians and persecuted them mercilessly, and many historians believe Nero himself set the fire. And so you think your leaders might be bad or difficult. Here's the guy on the throne that uh, when Paul was writing, and I didn't even go into some of the things that I probably wouldn't even want to repeat on a Sunday morning that were going on in Nero's life. Here's the guy that Paul is saying, submit to the authorities, pay your taxes, because God is sovereign, and anyone who's in power is ultimately there, and God has allowed them to be there. And he even goes so far to say God has placed them there, and you should submit to the authorities that are over you. I don't know who you voted for this week, but maybe that's a hard statement for you to hear. That's a hard, certainly a hard statement for some people to hear when you take into account some of the protests that have gone on in our country in the last week. But here's what Paul says to Christians. Submit to the authorities or over. They didn't even get a chance to vote. It's not like they got a chance to even pick. There was no democratic process. It was just Claudius is gone, Nero's in. You got to do what he says now. And that's basically what they did in Paul's writing in that context. So he says, look, when it comes to the earthly king and the temporary kingdom, participate in it until you can't. And we'll talk about what that until you can't means in just a moment. When it comes to the heavenly kingdom, you are to fully participate in the heavenly kingdom as well. In the second, participate in the second as well and fully. And this isn't that hard for us perhaps, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but Paul says, look, you have an obligation in God's kingdom as well, and that obligation is to love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the thing, what Paul is pointing out. You can fulfill every government law there is, but still not fulfill the law of God, which is to love. The government may be able to command you to pay taxes. They may be able to command you to do certain things. They cannot command you to love, but God does. And so Paul says, you need not just to fulfill the laws of your citizenship that is on this earth, you need also to fulfill the laws of your citizenship which is in heaven, which really boils down to one. Love one another. Love your, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you fulfill that law, you'll fulfill all the other laws. Do not commit adultery, do not covet, do not lie. I mean, the government has not, as far as I know, passed a law that said you cannot lie. I mean, there's certain places you cannot lie. You can't lie when you're under oath. But there's no, there's no law that says you can't lie to someone. But if you're going to fulfill God's law, it's a higher law. It's a loving law. There's no, there's no government law that says you cannot covet. In fact, there's whole industries built around it for the next month and a half, you are going to be bombarded with advertisements trying to get you to covet. There's no law against it. We actually promote it. But Paul says, love your neighbor as yourself. Do not covet. So God's law says don't do it. And so Paul says you not only need to fulfill the laws of the temporary kingdom you live in, but also fulfill the laws of the permanent and eternal kingdom that you live in. So participate in both. 
We are participants in both the earthly, temporary, and the heavenly eternal. But the question you have and I have, what about when they come into conflict? Right? I mean, that's the question that really comes up with this passage. What about Martin Luther King Jr.? What about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who resisted Hitler and the Nazis? What about Tiananmen Square? What about these places where people would resist the government authorities? What about these places where the government was forcing or trying to force people to do things that were clearly contrary to their faith? What about times like that? Well, one thing Paul says at the end of this passage, I would put it this way. He says, keep perspective. Live your present in light of your future. Paul, at the end of this passage, says it's time to wake up. Stop sleeping. Don't mess around with these earthly things, drunkenness and sexual immorality. He says, wake up, understand the time. Your Christ is coming. The time is short. Your salvation is nearer now than it ever has been. Live your present in light of the future. Understand the time that you're living in. Understand the time that you're living in. We're part of two kingdoms But the reality is what we find in Scripture as we look at this larger topic, Paul isn't addressing it particularly in this passage, but it's definitely addressed in the larger parts of Scripture that there are times when the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our God conflict and you will have to make a decision. I would say not most, at least right now, in this country. Maybe some of you come from a country where that's different, where most of the decisions you have to make are in conflict with the government if you're a Christian. But in this country right now, not most. Most of them, if we're honest, we can probably live out as Christians. But sometimes there's a conflict. So take a look at this org chart that kind of depicts the three different aspects of it. We have the law of God, follower of Jesus, and the laws of the state. So if we're going to depict it, our first obligation as followers of Jesus would be clearly to the law of God. So we put a line straight from the law of God to us. Our first obligation, our first priority is no question to God's law. But there's also a line between the follower of Jesus and the laws of the state. But I'd put a dotted line there. And when you have a dotted line on an org chart, it means there are responsibilities of the follower of Jesus to the laws of the state, but really my ultimate allegiance and I'm a direct report finally and mostly to the law of God. And then we'd add one more law, one more line, and we'd say the laws of the state are finally and ultimately accountable to God. And so leaders, whoever they may be, are ultimately accountable to God as the sovereign and ultimate leader. And that's, they're accountable to him. But for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have an accountability to the law of God and an accountability to the laws of the state. But where those things conflict, you are on good, solid, biblical ground to obey the laws of God if they conflict with the laws of the state. Now, like I say, I think that's a minority of times right now because I think it can very easily be used to ignore the clear teaching of the scripture just to say, well, I don't want to do that. I think that's against the laws of God. Well, just be clear that it is because there is a clear teaching in scripture that says submit to the authorities over you. 
unless, of course, you can't. Let me give you, as we close, a couple scriptural examples of where that happened. Acts chapter 5. I don't have it on the screen. Let me just tell you a little bit about what was going on. Acts chapter 5. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and his disciples are going about preaching, and they're causing quite a disturbance. And so some religious leaders capture Peter and some of the others, and they, and, and they flog them, and they, and they chastise them, and they say, don't go preach about Jesus anymore. We're going to let you go. We're not going to kill you, but don't go preach about Jesus anymore. And here's Peter's response when they got caught again. The religious leader said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than man. There are times in your life where you may have to make that decision. And you may have to say, I know what you're saying, but I must obey God rather than men. And there are times where that's not only the right thing, it's the biblical thing. In fact, it's the thing mandated for you by God. I'll give you one more example. This one's in the Old Testament, a man named Daniel. Daniel was um, taken away from his home country, uh, ripped away, uh, taken into exile by a foreign country. And uh, what would happen back then is they would take the best and the brightest, and instead of killing them or instead of making them part of your, the labor force, they would take the best and the brightest and they would utilize them in the uh, places of government. They would utilize them in aspects of government, submissive to the king and the ruler, but they would have to serve this foreign government that, think about what they just did, just ripped families apart, just destroyed your nation, and now they're going to take you and say you have to serve in their government, and they take the best and the brightest to do this, and that's what they did with Daniel. And they rose, and they gave Daniel a position in the kingdom of King Darius. But the other leaders, who were natives, didn't like this foreigner leading and ruling and being a part of their government. And so they came up with a plan. They came up with a plan, and they thought, what can we get Daniel on? And the only thing they could get Daniel on was his religious beliefs. The only thing they could catch him on was, we have to come up with a way that he will be guilty because of his religious beliefs. And so this is what Daniel chapter 6 says. The royal administrators, prefects, and satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, listen to this, he learned that the decree had been published. So Daniel knows this is a law of the state that says you cannot pray to anyone but the king. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed 
giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. Before what? Before the state passed a law that said you can't do that anymore. Before the government passed a law that said you can't pray anymore. And it says Daniel went back and did what he did just as he did before. There's a lot more to the story, but I wanted us just to hear that, to see that the Bible and God definitely has times where when your temporary kingdom and your eternal kingdom come into conflict, the right thing for you to do is to obey that eternal kingdom, that you must obey God and not man. So as followers of Jesus, we're a part of two kingdoms, an earthly kingdom and a heavenly kingdom. And the second should always rule the first. The second should always rule the first. It doesn't mean that we can't participate in citizens of this world. It doesn't mean that I can't submit to the authorities that are over me in places in this world. But it does mean that ultimately, I'm accountable to God. And that ultimately, my ultimate allegiance is to God and to God alone. And so there are times in your life where it might happen. It's happening in places in our country. You've seen it play out in the news over the last year in certain places. You've got groups. There was a famous case um, in this last year in the news that went all the way to the Supreme Court where a company called Hobby Lobby said, we can't in good conscience submit to the health care plan that you're asking us to do, not because we don't want to provide health care for our employees, but because the health care plan you're asking us to support is going to support abortions, which are against what we believe is God's will and plan. So we can't in good conscience support that. So they took it all the way to the Supreme Court because they said we must obey God more than man, even to the point where the family that owns that business was saying, we would shut down the business before we would submit. Billion dollar business. We would shut down the business before we would do anything that would violate what we feel is a clear commandment of God. There are times when it might have to be. Another case in the news in the last year, you might have heard about these pastors in Houston. Pastors in Houston who the mayor was saying, you have to give us your sermons because we want to see any place where in those sermons you have referenced certain issues that we would consider hate speech. And the pastor said, we can't in good conscience do that. These are things that we hold dear. We need to be able to preach the whole word of God. It's coming to that place in many places in our country. Um, some churches are wondering, you know, churches are tax-exempt organizations under the 501c3 aspect of our tax code. And some churches are wondering, how long is that going to last if churches are considered organizations that may promote hate speech? And I heard one person say this a couple weeks ago. I, I thought a statement that was timely and accurate. He said, you know, the day uh, churches censor what they say because they're worried they're going to lose their 501c3 status is the day 
they cease to be a church. And that's challenging. But there's a true aspect to that, that there may be times when in your personal life that you're going to say, I must obey God rather than man. One last passage out of the Bible to close with. I would submit to you that there may be a third way of the tension that we feel this past week. I think sometimes in this past week we would ask, you hear the question asked many times, whose side are you on? Are you on this side or are you on that side? Are you on his side or are you on her side? Are you on our side or are you on their side? Are you for us or are you against us? We just want the line drawn. Whose side are you on? We want you to mark the line in the sands. There was a situation in the Bible where a man named Joshua, he was fighting a battle in Jericho. And the passage says this, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? For us or against us? You got to sort out whose side are you on? And he said, no. That doesn't really answer the question, does it? Whose side are you on? Are you for us or are you against us? And his answer is no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, was an angel of God. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servants? See, the angel responds no and tells Joshua that he's on holy ground, tells him to keep proper perspective. What the angel is basically saying is I'm not on your side and I'm not on their side. I'm on God's side. And maybe, Joshua, the question you need to be asking, and maybe you, and maybe me, in November of 2016, need to be asking, is whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Are we on God's side? And can we see in our country what God's side is? what God's perspective is, and that nobody probably has it completely right. But are we on God's side? Because if we are, there'll be many times when we could submit to the authorities that are over us. And there'll be some times that we may have to say we must obey God and not man. But all the time, we must make sure we are worshiping and glorifying God with our lives and the way that we live it. I'm going to ask our worship team to return as we close our time in prayer. So I said I'd get back to Jesus' answer. Some of you know who are familiar with the Bible. So they said, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus' response was this. He said, give me a coin. And they gave him a coin, and he said, whose image is this? And of course, the image on the coin was Caesar's. 
And so Jesus' response was, then give to Caesar what Caesar's. His image is on it. But give to God what's God's. Because his image is on you. So whatever has been minted in the mints of Caesar or Washington, fine. Give to them what they ask for. But whatever has been minted in the mint of God and bears the image of him, well, that belongs to God. So your internal, your soul, who you are, belongs to him. And so live your life in such a way that, yeah, you can give to Caesar what's Caesar's. You want the extra, you want this stuff that belongs to you, this stuff that's not going to last. I'm not going to hold on to it too tightly. But give to God what is God's. Would you stand with me, pray with me? As we pray, there's... um, probably a lot of things we can pray for in a week like this. First Timothy says we're to pray for those who are in authority. No matter who you voted for on Tuesday, we need to pray for President-elect Trump. We need to pray for senators, senate congressmen, congresswomen, mayors, selectmen, those people who are in authority. Because what Paul said, they didn't get there without God knowing it. They didn't get there without God's permission. And they're there in authority over you and me. So let's pray for them. Let's pray that they would govern well. Let's pray that they would govern rightly. Let's pray that they would govern in wisdom. Let's pray that they would govern justly. Let's pray that they would govern mercifully. Let's pray that they would govern the way that God would have them to govern. Lead the way that God would have them to lead. It's a great responsibility that they have, so let's pray that they would do it well. See, what Paul is basically saying and what Jesus said is the institution of government is really instituted by God. It doesn't always go perfectly, but there's a right way that it should go. It's kind of like the institution of marriage that God put in place. It doesn't always go perfectly, but there's a right way God wants it to go. Same thing with government. As we pray, though, Maybe we can also pray, God, heal our nation. Maybe we also need to pray and confess, God, forgive us. God, forgive us for spending more time worrying about an election than on our knees praying for the people who govern. God, forgive us for spending more time arguing and caring about something of this world rather an enemy, and who might be our enemy and who might be against us rather than looking for the image of God in everyone that you look into their eyes. Forgive us for spending more time thinking about who someone's going to vote for rather than who Jesus died for. Forgive us. So Lord, we come to you today God, and we recognize that you are on the throne, that you are in control. Lord, we sing about it. We believe it. Lord, we we profess it. We confess it, Lord. But maybe we don't always live like it. Maybe we live worried and harried lives like we don't actually believe that you are on the throne. 
But God, would you reaffirm in our lives that you are on the throne, that you are in control, that you are God, and you are God alone. Lord, we worship you. Father, we thank you, Lord, and we confess, Lord, that at times we have spent more time worrying about who's on our side or who's on the other side instead of spending time on our knees making sure that we are on your side. Lord, would you make us a church? Would you make us a people who are on your side and who are big enough to have grace and mercy and to love the way we have been loved? To love the way we are grateful that you love us as sinners and who at times has lived as your enemies and yet you reconciled us to yourself at a great cost. Would you help us to love in that way? And Father, we pray for the leaders of our nation. God, we lift up President-elect Trump. We lift up President Obama. Lord, we pray for them today. God, we ask that for these next few months that there will be a smooth transition of power. We pray for unity in our country. We pray for decisions President Obama will have to make between now and January when his term's up that you would help him to govern well and lead our country well. We pray for President-elect Trump that as he comes into office that he, Lord, would govern rightly, that he would govern justly, that he would govern, Lord Jesus, in accordance with your word and your will, Lord. Father, we pray for those that hold office in our communities, in our commonwealth. Lord God, would you give them wisdom? Governor Baker, senators, and congressmen and women. Lord, would you give them wisdom? Would you help them to see what is right? And then to have the courage to lead in that direction, God. Father, may we be faithful to pray for them, for the awesome task and responsibility that they have on their plates, Lord. Would you bless them? Would you bless them in order to be a blessing to others? Father, we thank you. And Lord, I pray for wisdom for each and every one of us. If there's times in our lives where it seems this tension is there, where the kingdoms of this world conflict with the kingdoms of our God, God, help us to move in wisdom and courage. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's sing another song of worship as our, to our God this morning.